Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following recently? Well, a big welcome to our regular listeners and those that are joining for the first time. One of the stories we wanted to cover off first was related to the NHS and the virtual wards. The NHS has recently had its biggest strike yet. For the first time in this ongoing dispute, which we've been covering as part of some of our recent episodes, is that ambulance workers and nurses have walked out together in England. More than a third of hospital trusts were affected through this latest action. And although we're not going to get into the strikes in detail today, we did want to cover off these NHS virtual wards, which is one of the ways in which the government is trying to ease the pressure on the NHS. The aim of these wards is to support mostly elderly patients, as well as those with respiratory conditions, in their own homes rather than hospitals, using video and other technology. It's going to involve community teams visiting people in their homes to deliver that care. And it comes amid this intense pressure that we've been covering on the health service and this dramatic deterioration in waiting times for urgent care. And to give you a flavor of this, in December, over a third of patients waited more than four hours to be seen at A&E. So, Ollie, I know you've been following this story quite closely. What do you make of it all? Amid all of the pressures and bad news stories we hear about the NHS and the government at the moment and all the challenges they're under, it's nice to hear of the story around what the government and what the health service are doing to try and alleviate some of this pressure. Using virtual wards really has the aim of reducing workforce pressures and freeing up capacity. It will enable doctors to see many more patients if they are if they're seeing them virtually, making use of cameras and microphones, leveraging that technology that we all have in our homes already, and really hopefully improves patient flow and care in the community which we know are struggles for the NHS at the moment. I think one of the points that it is just worth watching is the evidence so far suggests that this is safe and this is obviously more efficient if you don't have the patients traveling to and from seeing the doctor. Just worth noting that we do need to study are patient outcomes adversely impacted by virtual appointments and are we maintaining that that level of service for, for all the patients? Yeah, agreed, Ollie. And just building on some of your points, it does rely on existing community staff to make this happen. And this does put more pressure on people. And as we know, the NHS is already overstretched as well as the community workforce. And this could result in potentially more people leaving the profession, which is obviously not the not the aim. Professor Leary, who's actually Professor of Healthcare and Workforce Modelling, said of this change that for them to be rolled out safely, there's going to need to be workforce impact assessments to be carried out to evaluate how they would affect the workforce. And finally, gaining a thorough understanding of a patient's condition usually does involve that physical examination by a doctor. Many people prefer that face-to-face -face interaction you get from seeing a doctor face-to-face. -face. And I know personally, I've, I've read of some pretty bad stories whereby patients are misdiagnosed through virtual appointments. And that can obviously be very damaging, you know, if they miss a cancer diagnosis, for instance, through a virtual appointment. So that lack of physical exams is, is, is definitely one of the biggest drawbacks of telemedicine, but it may outweigh some of those efficiencies and things like that that you mentioned, which obviously needs to happen to make sure that the NHS is more fit for purpose and more patients can get seen in a timely manner. 
exactly. So the UK government's current plan is to expand the use of these virtual wards. And the goal at the moment is to treat up to 50,000 patients a month via these virtual wards. So that's uh, an initial goal. We'll, we'll, we'll see where it gets to. And obviously, Jack, as you said, I think it's going to be really key to measure patient outcomes and the efficiency benefits. So the virtual wards were one element of a two-year plan that's been announced by the government, but there are some other initiatives I just want to touch on very briefly. This two-year plan is going to promise 800 new ambulances. That's going to include 100 specialist mental health vehicles and 5,000 more hospital beds, which are drastically needed. Same-day emergency care units will open in every hospital with a major accident emergency department. And ministers hope this measure will see thousands of people each week avoiding an overnight stay in hospital. This is where the biggest cost happens, which is patients go in A&E, they take up hospital beds, and then we need to urgently free them up for patients that are coming in. You hear those stories of ambulances queuing outside the hospitals. So we're hoping through these changes that will obviously improve patient care and outcomes. Ali and Jack, it's great to see a real maybe bulking up of this effort abroad. I think here in the States, we've been closely watching this idea of the hospital at home or, or the clinical home. And the UK has really been sort of a, a prime use case and test point. So it'll be great to see how they scale, how they get physician buy-in because provider resistance in some cases, but also the reimbursement here is a real challenge in kind of scaling the system. But it does show real opportunity in helping alleviate some of those pinch points that I think on either side of the pond we're, we're seeing when it comes to our hospital systems. I think it's worth adding as well, Jen, that a lot of this was actually forcibly trialed almost in the last two years. So this is something that within a couple of months, everyone had to switch to for non-emergency care. So I think this is going to be a real test of how much of that change is going to be permanent and then how much we'll go back to as it was pre-2020. So an, another headline in the UK this week that I've been following is the infected blood inquiry. I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard of this inquiry. It's been going on for many years now, and it finished hearing submissions on the 4th of February. The full report is expected in the autumn. And this inquiry, just for some background, is looking into how thousands of patients in the UK from the 70s to the early 90s and many of which had haemophilia, came to be given blood or blood products like plasma that were infected with HIV and with hepatitis C. Now, the evidence that's being heard as part of the inquiry spans over five decades, one of the biggest inquiries in, in NHS history, and that included recently former Prime Minister John Major giving evidence as well. It's not clear exactly how many patients have been impacted. Over 30,000 patients are believed to have been given hepatitis C, and over a thousand patients believed to have been given HIV. And I think one of the elements of the inquiry that really came to light is the complex supply chain for blood and blood products in the UK. A lot of the global supply, especially of plasma, comes from the United States where patients are paid to donate blood. I believe there's only five countries or so where that is the case. And a lot of them are inmates from prison. So the supply chain of how these products were reaching patients with haemophilia in the UK really came to light and the full report is expected later this year so we'll be following that and keeping an eye on its findings. Yeah Ollie this is a really moving and, and sad story that, that we've seen here and I know they've made changes as a result to the supply chain and the underlying processes as you've kind of touched upon but obviously 
there needs to be lessons learned ensure this never happens again and you know it's great this review has happened it's a shame it's taken so long for the, the people to get compensated and for the full report to come out but clearly there needs to be these lessons learned are taken forward to ensure this does not happen again and perhaps looking into how we can get more locally sourced blood in the UK as well I know there's big campaigns to get people to donate blood and plasma. I think a lot more of those awareness campaigns will be important as well to make sure that we get the blood and the plasma perhaps sourced locally to help patients that desperately need it. That's exactly right, Jack. Obviously, blood and other blood products are donated in the UK. People aren't compensated for their time. Unfortunately, that means we have a, a deficit in some products and we end up importing them from countries where the individual was paid. So it is a complex landscape that needs to be managed but as we know we, we do need to increase our supplies and, and preferably our locally sourced supplies of these products. Such a truly sad series of events but it really does show in today's healthcare ecosystem how important it is for that rigor and that discipline across the full global supply chain because impacts in one system in one country can really ripple across the whole globe and affect patient care. I'm hoping we can end maybe on a bit of a high note and report some good news or maybe even some nice news, if you'll, if you'll forgive my pun. I believe there have been some recent approvals coming out of the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Which ones have you both been really following closely? One that really caught my eye that NICE recommended this week was an Alexion therapy. It's a treatment for patients with pediatric onset Hyphophastasia, also referred to as HPP, which is a rare bone disease. In children, this can result in unexplained fractures and even rickets in, in some cases. It is a very rare condition. Only roughly one in 100,000 patients are born with it. But this treatment has had really positive early signs. And for the children that it does impact, this should really improve quality of life. And it's the first approved medicine in England of this type of disease. Jack, I know that you were also looking at one that NICE recently gave the nod to for treating children with epilepsy. Yeah, Ollie, I've been following another NICE uh, approval, which is for Jazz Pharmaceuticals uh, product called Epididilex. It's basically a cannabidiol oral solution, which is developed in partnership with GW Pharmaceuticals. Similar to the one that you covered, this therapy concerns patients or children of two years of age and above and relates to adjunctive therapy of seizures associated with tuberous sclerosis complex, otherwise known as TSC. The TSC causes benign tumors to grow in vital organs of the body. And epilepsy is one of the most common neurological results and can severely impact the lives of these patients. It's diagnosed in infancy, but many patients do not receive a diagnosis until later in childhood when symptoms appear. And across the UK, it's estimated that around 3,700 to 11,000 people, so quite a wide range there in the UK, live with TSC. So I want to cover one final one, which is Gilead's CAR T-cell therapy, which has been recommended for use across the NHS. T-cell therapies are incredibly innovative. They have a very complex supply chain, but their efficacy is quite astounding in improving patient outcomes, although they do come at a cost. They equate to around £100,000 per patient for the treatment, but that is outweighed by their superior efficacy. The treatment that Gilead has involves adult patients with relapsed or refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. 
And through the Cancer Drug Fund in 2018, England was the first country in Europe to provide access to a CAR T-cell therapy to treat blood cancers. And since then, over 500 patients in England have received this therapy. I think it's interesting with both of those new therapies that, that you've described to reflect on the themes that are coming through there. You know, on one hand, we've got cannabidiol and our new understanding and all the research that's going into the potential benefits. Um, there can be especially on brain related or, or, or mental health diseases that we don't understand very well. And then obviously, two months in a row now, we've been discussing exciting progress in gene editing treatments. So two areas that I think over the next 10 years, there'll be even more amazing progress in and really discovering the, the, the potential. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. It's really exciting developments. It's great that we're getting these really innovative products out to patients that need them, particularly for, for children. And it'd be really exciting to see hopefully more of these types of approvals coming in to benefit patients. Thanks, Jack and Ollie, for taking some time to bring our listeners through the latest developments. We know the only constant in the healthcare industry has changed, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.